from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. In Paul's words. Now it's not necessary for me to write you about the ministry to the saints, for I know your eagerness, which is the subject of my boasting about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you may not prove to have been empty in this case, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, not ready to give, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you in this undertaking. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for this bountiful gift that you have promised so that it may be ready as a voluntary gift and not as an extortion. The point is this. The one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each of you must give as you've made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance. So that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. As it is written, God scatters abroad, God gives to the poor, God's righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for your great generosity, which will produce thanksgiving to God through us. For the rendering of this ministry not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also overflows with many thanksgivings to God. Through the testing of this ministry, you glorify God by your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and by the generosity of your sharing with them and with all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God that God has given you. Thanks be to God for God's indescribable gift. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some of you know I, I recently got back uh, from a faith and history tour of Scotland. We had a, a tour group of about 20 from this church uh, that went to Scotland for this faith and history tour. It was postponed because of COVID from 2020 and fortunately we were able uh, to go and return with uh, relative ease. Uh, on Sunday, two weeks ago, September the 12th, our group had the opportunity to worship in the magnificent and beautiful Glasgow Cathedral. And as you might already know, the Presbyterian tradition, the Presbyterian Church in the United States was born out of the Church of Scotland. And so the service, the worship itself felt very familiar to us. Uh, the pastor there is a man by the name of Mark Johnston. And Mark began his sermon with a very interesting story. Every year, Queen Elizabeth II uh, spends one or two weeks in the early parts of the summer 
at either the, the Holyrood Palace in Edinburgh or at the Balmoral Castle about 50 miles west of Aberdeen. And when the Queen is in Scotland, when the royal family comes to Scotland, the Church of Scotland always assigns a minister to her and to the royal family as the week-long or two-week-long uh, chaplain. One year, Mark, the pastor of the cathedral in Glasgow, was asked to be the Queen's chaplain. The chaplain is tasked to lead a daily devotionals, Vesper services, either in the palace chapel or at a church nearby, and of course, lead Sunday services as well, and then uh, any spiritual needs that come up from Her Majesty or within the royal family, the chaplain is called to be attentive to them. Well, after Mark led the, the Sunday service, uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, came through the line and then asked him to take a walk with her through the palace gardens, just the two of them, an invitation you always say yes to. And as they walked, the queen said, Reverend, I, I want you to know that I believe there is not a more difficult and high-pressure call in our secularized world today than the call to be a minister in a local parish. Humbled, Mark said, thank you, your, your majesty. I, I appreciate you saying that, but with all due respect, I think the call to be queen uh, has significantly more pressure and challenge than what we face in the parish today. Uh, queen Elizabeth smiled and she said, perhaps, However, when you have a sense of call, a, a sense that I have had, she said, since the day of my coronation, up until this very day, when you have a sense of call, no matter the, the difficulties or the obstacles or the challenges that I have faced, I have not been afraid to do that which God has called me to do. The pastor nodded in agreement and said, certainly, your Majesty, there is power, isn't there? There is courage. There is grace afforded to us when we affirm and when we trust God's call on our lives. Now, truth be told, I wish I could have relayed that story with a sufficient British accent and Scottish brogue, because I feel like it would add to the poignancy and the gravity of the story. But I think even without it, you get a sense of, of why an interaction like that is important for us today as Christians. I want to say something specifically about vocation. I want to say something specifically about call today. We often, when we talk about vocation in the life of the Christian faith, we often talk about it in individual terms. We often think about a, a, a call that comes to us directly, and that's right to do so. Whether we're talking about a call to be queen or a call to be a minister or a teacher or a laborer or a lawyer or a, a nurse or artist or banker or a parent or a, or a friend, for the Christian, when we think of call, we often think about it as an exchange or a conversation or a discernment process between us and God as individuals and with God. And, and, and we get this sense, right, when we think about vocation, when we think about call, we get this sense that God has planted seeds in our hearts. God has 
planted passions for particular work and a particular way of seeing the, the world. And, and we have to adjudicate that. We have to, we have to discern what that means for our lives. Perhaps we have to wrestle with that call. We have to come to terms that God is calling us individually to do something or to be something. And we have to ask the question, am I going to say yes to this thing that God is calling me to do? Am I going to say yes to this way of being human that God is calling me to be. So there is this sense when we talk about vocation, when we talk about call, that we think about it in individual terms. But I think it's important to note, I think it must be said, that vocation or a sense of God's call to do something or, or to be something does not exclusively belong to the sphere of the individual. We see this time and time again throughout church history. We see it in the biblical witness that sometimes God is calling people to do something. Not just an individual, but, but a collective, a whole, a family, a community, a nation, or even a congregation at the corner of 16th and Peachtree. Now, to best understand what's happening in, in 1 Chronicles 29, the text that Christian read for us this morning, I think we need to begin in our interpretive work of this text. We have to begin first and foremost by applying the lens of communal vocation. If we're going to understand what's going on in this text, we have to understand that God, what God is doing in this story is offering a collective call, a, a communal call, not just an individual one, but a collective call. One. And I want you to overlay that vision, that theological framework, as we move through this text this morning. In order to do that, I have to give just a little bit of, of history as we get into it. In the preceding chapter of 1 Chronicles, so 1 Chronicles 28, we learn that David's time as king is coming to an end. And we also learn that God has chosen his son Solomon to take the reins. That Solomon will eventually take the throne following David. Now just for context, we're talking about a thousand years before the birth of Christ. About a thousand years before the birth of Christ. So in 1 Chronicles 28, we, we not only learn that Solomon has a divine appointment, but we also learn that God has revealed something to King David. Something that didn't originate in the heart or mind of King David, but that was a gift of God's grace, a word spoken to David. And the word was this, that Solomon, his son, would lead the people in constructing the temple in Jerusalem. Now just take another half step back in history. You remember Moses, right? Remember Moses at Mount Sinai receives uh, the, the, the Ten Commandments. Uh, then what do the people do? The people build an ark. They build basically a, a portable tent and they put, put the stone tablets in the ark and the, and the ark leads them and the people of God, from a theological perspective, believe that God's presence dwells in their midst in the presence of the ark. That God has made somehow in a mysterious way God's home in their midst in this ark. Eventually they come to Shiloh and Shiloh will be the first capital of the nation. They will build a modest temple there in the 12th century BCE. And Shiloh would be the place where this temple would, would be erected and constructed and where the Ark of the Covenant would reside. But then some bad things happen. Remember the Philistines, David and Goliath? Remember the Philistines, a great army? They come and they sack Shiloh. They destroy the temple. 
and they steal the Ark of the Covenant. Eventually, David comes to power. The Philistines are defeated. He conquers Jerusalem, and he discerns that this will be the seat of the monarchy. And it's there that a new temple will be erected, will be constructed, that it will be a holy place, like the Ark of the Covenant, where God's very spirit will dwell in the midst of the people. It'll become a place of worship. It'll become a place of community. It'll become a place of sacrifice. It'll become a place of pilgrimage that honors the majesty and the sovereignty and the covenantal love of the one true God of Israel. Now, again, it's important to note, friends, that the idea for the temple actually originates in the heart and the mind of God. It doesn't originate in David's heart. It doesn't originate in David's mind, per se. It's a word that God speaks to David, saying that it'll be Solomon that will be the leader when we, the people, when the people, rather, my people, build my house and my courts. It's also important to note that this vocation will not rest on Solomon's shoulders alone. This is tying it back to this sense of vocation. This is not just an individual call to Solomon. This project, this work doesn't belong to him exclusively. It'll be a call that will be given to the entire nation. It'll be something that the collective whole will engage in. And our first cue a clue, rather, that this is a collective call comes to us in the words of verse 5 from this text this morning, First Chronicles 29, when David lays out the vision for the temple's construction and he asks the people of God this question, who then will offer willingly? Who will offer willingly, consecrating themselves today to the Lord? Now, what you need to know about this uh, particular word from the Hebrew uh, the word that we translate to the English word consecrate, it literally means, it's a turn of phrase, it literally means to fill one's hands. To consecrate means to fill one's hands. And the idea here is that you would use this word to apply it to a priest who is being ordained in the service of God when they were making their first offering to God as a priest. Do you follow me? That they wouldn't come empty-handed. They would come bringing a sacrifice and they would offer it to God. Their hands would be filled. And in that act of sacrifice, they would be consecrated for the ministry. They'd be consecrated for the work. The priest, of course, is called individually to a specific work, right? They have a specific call. David is using a word that is often applied to the individual priest. He's using a word for the whole community. Do you get what's happening in this text? He is asking, who is going to come forward? He's asking the whole community, who is going to come forward with their hands filled? Who is going to consecrate themselves to this particular work, to building God's holy home? Friends, the sermon series we launched today, this is just a little logistical note, will have two carve-outs in it. In the weeks ahead, we'll, we'll have two special days where we're going to just put the series on pause. Uh, next Sunday, World Communion Sunday, we'll put the series on pause. And then on November the 7th, for All Saints Sunday, we have important work and worship that day as we honor all of those who have died in this past year. We'll deviate from the series on those two days. But for the remainder of the Sundays, from this Sunday 
to the third Sunday of November. We're going to reflect on 1 Chronicles 29 and 2 Corinthians 9, this text that I read about generosity. We're going to have these two texts before us every Sunday. So when you're here next week, it's not a typo. Well, next week, no. But the week after, it's not a typo. We're going to keep these texts in front of us. And by the end of this series, I guarantee you're going to know them by heart. What remains of my time this morning, what I'd like to do is to share just a little bit as to the why of these texts and the why of this sermon series. Why are we leaning in to these words and leaning into these themes? Well, these particular texts, I believe, have great meaning and import for us, for the First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta, in this stage and season of our faith and life together, because we as a church, as a whole, have discerned and have been discerning for the past five years, have been discerning a call from God, a congregational call, a collective call, that God is calling this church, this cohort of sinners and saints that includes members and friends and online worshipers and those who affiliate with us, all of us as a community, that God is calling us to something bold, that God is calling us to something transformational, that God is calling us to something that will enhance our capacity to fulfill our mission to humbly follow Jesus Christ as a community of conviction and compassion. Friends, this call is not something that came in a dream. It didn't happen overnight. It's been five years in the making since 2016. Five years ago, during this fall season, a team of members and staff came to, together to discern a long-range strategic plan for this church that would shape the next seven years of our ministry and mission. In 2017, that plan was approved by our session, our board, and it was given the name On The Way. Many of you know this, and the reason it was given that name is because we were trying to recognize our, our momentum and our movement toward our 175th anniversary, which takes place in 2023. One of the strategic goals from that plan was to birth a campus master planning team charged to reimagine our existing facilities, our campus, so as to prepare ourselves for our third century of ministry. That particular team began its work in November of 17, and it produced a set of core values that articulated what we believed God was calling us to do in terms of helping our campus embody our mission. Not just to serve our mission, but to actually embody it as we move into God's good future. In 2019, the session hired Hauser Walker Architects, who led the congregation through a master planning process. That firm, Hauser Walker, conducted 43 uh, input meetings and surveys with more than 700 members, neighbors, and other stakeholders providing feedback. Some of you participated. Some of you forgot that you participated. It feels like a lifetime ago. That feedback, I want to be very clear about this. That feedback shaped a mandate for that team. We're Presbyterian here at the corner of 16th and Peachtree, which means we believe that God speaks to us through the community. 
through that word that the congregation was sensing and, and providing feedback on. And that feedback shaped a, a mandate for us to envision the highest and best and most faithful use of our property for the next 50 years. To envision a bold approach that integrates our history and a sense of innovation, as well as aligns our campus's outward appearance to our commitment to radical hospitality. That there's somewhat of a disconnect, if we're honest, we heard this from the congregation, between our fortress-like campus and our instinct for radical hospitality. And we want those two to align in a more faithful way. We receive feedback to improve navigation and wayfinding when you're on campus. We receive feedback to improve our openness and connectivity to the North Midtown neighborhood. We heard feedback about having a centralized office space where our staff can work together. Heard about the parking conflicts that are often caused by the preschool car line. Anybody ever get caught in that car line? Heard about better utilization of all spaces on our campus, especially the upper floors. We heard about the dignity of spaces that serve our community ministries and the deep desire and need to not have an undignified entrance through a fire escape in the Smith Building so everyone who comes onto this campus, including our most vulnerable friends, will be welcomed as if, they, as if we're welcoming Christ himself. We talked about light and natural light. We talked about safety and security and, and long-term sustainability. We embrace the mandate to preserve the historic core of our campus and to preserve as many green spaces as possible. We receive the mandate to increase our capacity to support and serve our most vulnerable neighbors, to increase the flexibility of our spaces, to create spaces for informal interaction and community gatherings, and technology to expand our influence and connectivity in Atlanta and beyond. And we believed, as I said, that through this feedback, the Spirit of God was speaking to us collectively, not as individuals, but collectively as a whole. And we were listening and we're trying to listen. And as many of you know, the campus master plan was unanimously approved by the session. We presented it to the congregation over a three-week period in Fifield Hall. We recorded those sessions. We put them up online in January of 2020. And the plan was met with enthusiasm and energy and excitement. And then the pandemic hit. And rightfully, this session discerned a pause to the plan because they knew there would be more immediate needs in front of us, needs that we would have to move toward, needs for our vulnerable neighbors, needs for our members who couldn't leave their house, technology needs so that the gospel could continue to be proclaimed and pastoral ministry could continue to happen. They wisely paused the campaign. But as we began to move through the pandemic and had opportunities to revision and recast the master plan in light of what we learned during the pandemic, the session believed unanimously that God was calling us to get back on schedule, to pick up the work. And in early 2021, they released that team again to continue on with a tweaked master plan and a new capital campaign goal. And friends, just in a few weeks, in, in just a few weeks, we will unveil that revised plan to the congregation and to the Midtown community and to the city. We're gonna share details about what we have already accomplished in a quiet phase of this campaign by God's grace 
and what it will take for all of us to reach the goal that we believe God is putting before us in a capital campaign. There will be time for that, and you'll hear more about that in the coming weeks. But what is most important right now in this moment, what is most important in this very hour, is for you to know that it is God who is calling us to this work. And therefore, because it's God calling us to this work, it is not just work about bricks and mortar. It's not just work about architectural plans. It's not just work about capital campaign giving pyramids. This is theological work. First and foremost, this is discerning who God is calling us to be as a church. All of us. It's theological work. And it's work that I believe in the very depths of my being that God is calling all of us to consecrate ourselves to. All of us. Every single one. That God is calling us to come to this mission and to this project with our hands as full as they can be. And offer what God is calling us to offer, to accomplish what God is calling us to do. 2 Corinthians 9 speaks of, of our vocation to generosity. And I don't want anybody to be confused on this point. Generosity is a call that every Christian ought to embrace. It's not like you're discerning whether you're going to teach Sunday school or usher on a Sunday. Generosity is something that, that all of us are called to. It's part of the DNA of what it means to be a Christian. It's not optional. Generosity is at the heart of our Christian faith because it's at the heart of God. God is generous. God has been generous in the gift of the Holy Spirit. God has been generous with God's presence on the mountaintop and in the valley. God has been with us and generous with love and grace and forgiveness, even in our darkest moments and our darkest times. God has been generous in the beauty of creation. God has been generous in the, this church, not just the physical structures, but, but the people. And of course, most importantly, God has been generous in and through Jesus Christ. Remember those words, they're actually printed in the mosaic in the back corner. Maybe you'd walk by it before you leave the sanctuary. For God so loved the world that God gave. That God gave. And God gave Christ himself a gift that liberates us from death, liberates us from fear, liberates us from shame and anger and frees us to love and to be loved. And it's Christ's generosity that roots our generosity, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance so that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. Friends, when we are in relationship with God, when we're in relationship with God's people, our hands are full because of God's grace. We are spiritually preparing in this season of our life for this work and for this capital campaign. We're spiritually and theologically preparing. And in order to do, to do that, we have to embrace the reality that God is calling us to this work. For five years, we've been discerning it. And now is the time that we continue to spiritually and communally prepare for a capital campaign. And that we would remember in all of it the generosity of God setting the pace for our own 
generosity. And to close where I began, with the wisdom that was offered in that exchange between the queen and my new friend Mark, that as we engage this season, we do not have to be afraid to do the thing God is calling us to do, that we can claim power and courage and grace afforded to us as we affirm and trust God's call on our congregation in this moment in history. May we be willing to engage that work for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world. Amen.